Well, that scene is taken from the last book in the scriptures that we have, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And if you have a Bible, if you brought one with you, or if you want to use the one in the pew in front of you, I'll invite you to open up there to Revelation chapter 5, and that's where we're going to camp out this morning. We've, we try to do um, Easter a little bit differently every year. Some years I've, I've basically given an apologetics lecture, a philosophy lecture as to why I believe that we can, um, or why we can know for certain that Jesus did, in fact, raise be, you know, rise from the dead and rise from the grave and what are the reasons we have for believing that or sometimes we'll focus in on some of the accounts um, in the gospels of Jesus of, of, of the resurrection and how people responded to him this year we want to just take a, a step back and allow the revelation of John um, in this apocalyptic letter that he's written to the churches, to the early churches, of this vision that he has. We want to take a step back and, and let that speak to us about what's going on behind the scenes in the heavenlies. This is a scene that takes place in heaven. This is a scene that's taking place in heaven. The, the previous chapter, Revelation 4, ends with the worship of him who is seated on the throne. And everyone's bowing down and worship being him who sits on the throne. And now in Revelation chapter 5, um, John, in his vision, he sees a scroll that's in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And the, the, the scroll um, has writing on both sides of it, but it's sealed with seven seals. Now again, this is apocalyptic literature. It's a genre of literature that um, we're not really used to reading. There isn't really anyone who's writing apocalyptic literature anymore. But, but in apocalyptic literature, what we, what, we're, what we need to understand is that, um, that, that the things that we're reading are symbols and they're images that are meant to show something greater and something grander. And so we want to step back this morning and we want to see um, who Jesus is. You know, and, and look at the images and look at the symbolism of this letter and say how worthy he is of our worship and what his resurrection has accomplished and who he is and what, it's declared, what his resurrection has declared him to be. And so the God the Father is sitting on the throne and he has in his right hand a, a scroll. What's the scroll? What's written in it? Now most... Um, scholars believe that what's written in the scroll, that the scroll contains um, the plans for bringing God's original creation purposes, God's original purpose when he made the world to fulfillment. That, that God made this world perfect. He, he made humanity and, and, and everything in this world to flourish and to, and to, to be healthy and whole and, and to, um, to live in harmony, to just to live a life of flourishing and, and of perfection. And yet in the fall, while sin entered, while through humanity, as sin entered the world, his purposes uh, in creation, his, his original intent in creation was, was marred and broken. And we, the scroll that's in the right hand of him who sits on the throne contains the plans for bringing that 
original intent back to fulfillment. That, that this scroll contains the eternal decrees of God, his purposes, his plans, his blessing, and his judgments. It's a scroll that's of unparalleled importance. Five things that show us the importance of the scroll. First, it's held by God himself in his right hand. His right hand is symbolism of his authority. So God himself is holding the scroll in his right hand. The scroll is written on both sides. That's uncommon. For a scroll, usually, you know, it's a long piece of parchment or paper or whatever. And, and you would write on the, the inside of it and you roll it up. And, but no, this scroll is written on both sides. It's full. There's no room to add to it. It's, it, it cannot be added to. It's written on both sides. Thirdly, the, the, the importance of the scroll is seen in that it's sealed with seven seals. Now in the scripture, and particularly in Revelation, the number seven is symbol, symbolic of completeness and perfection. And so this scroll is completely and perfectly sealed. It cannot be opened. And then fourthly, its importance is seen in the fact that no earthly or heavenly person or power or principality was found to be worthy to open it. No one could open it. And then lastly, its importance is seen in how John reacts when no one is found worthy to open it. it John says, he says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even look inside. That's John's reaction as he wept loudly. Let me ask you a question. Do you know any overreactors? You're nudging your spouse right now, right? Do you know any overreactors? You left the toothpaste on the top off. You don't love me. Like, John's reaction is right. He's the ideal reader here. His, his disposition should be everyone's disposition when we realize the cosmos doesn't have a champion. He weeps and he wept and he wept loudly and rightly. When we realize the cosmos doesn't have a champion, our reaction is to weep. But thank God Chapter 5 of Revelation doesn't end with verse 4. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See? He says, Look, behold. Some translation. Look, see. What do you see, John? What should you see, John? See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll And it's seven seals. Look, John, behold, pay attention. Look, open your eyes and see. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does that mean? What's what's this issue? What's the thing of the lion of the tribe of Judah? Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is one of Israel's, Jacob's, 12 sons. And it was prophesied that from Judah would come a Messiah, a Savior King, who would 
who would be victorious and who would lead Israel's people in, in defeating their enemies and overcoming their enemies and restore the Israel's kingdom and to be the Savior, to be the Savior King. And he's pictured as a lion. What's a lion? Lions are, lion is the king of the beasts, right? Lions are, 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 are ripped. I don't know if you've ever seen a lion, but they're like chiseled. They got wavy hair, broad shoulders, thin waist, like me upside down kind of thing, right? Lions roar and they rule, they devour. Lions are victorious and strong. I remember um, when our kids were little, we went to the um, zoos in Stevensville. I don't know if you've ever been there, um, this little hick zoo that we have in Niagara, and I remember, like, there's a lion there, and it was just, it's caged up, right, and it's just so sad, but he's ripped, and he's chiseled, and he's just laying there, and I was kind of like, I'm free, so I roared at him with my kid, and he's like, didn't, he like opens an eye, looks at me, so I'd roar again, and he, he kind of, opened both eyes, and let out a massive roar that had me running because even though there's a fence, even though he's in the cage, that I am, I am totally intimidated by a lion. If you've ever gone on a safari, I haven't, but I'm told when you go on a safari, you'll see all kinds of animals together, right? You can see a, you know, an elephant here and a giraffe right next to it and birds landing on top of the giraffe. If you find a lion on a safari, you won't see another animal. You'll, you'll never see one, right? Because everyone knows where the lions are and they stay away. A lion is victorious and strong and mighty. And what's the, so he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Root of David means his lineage, is the family of David. Well, who's David? David is Israel's greatest king. So it's talking again about royalty and strength. David, they, they wrote a song about David. I don't know if you know the Old Testament. You know, it's like, Saul has killed his thousands. I think that was the tune, actually. But David has killed his tens of thousands. That's, what they, that's the song they sang about David, is that, yeah, our previous king Saul killed a thousand people, but David's killing tens of thousands. He's like, he's strong. So this... Look, John, the, the, the elder is saying, look, look, open your eyes, look. And what, that's what he's hearing, right? He's hearing from the elders and he's saying, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Like, this is Mustafa. This is Aslan, right? The king of kings. This is what John heard. But what did John see? When John opened his eyes and he obeyed the command of this elder, the one of the elders who said, do not weep. Look, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is what he heard, right? He's hearing about a lion. He's hearing about the root from David. He's hearing about the king, the mighty, victorious one. But when he opens his eyes and looks, what does he see? He heard of a lion. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He heard of a lion we saw a lamb instead, a slain lamb. 
Slain is a pretty uh, cleansed word, kind of disinfected word for us. It's a slaughtered lamb, a lamb that has been forcibly and horribly killed. The Christian story can be summarized with this. That we worship a lamb who came to do a lion's work. We worship a lamb who came to do a lion's work. I want us to recognize this morning four things about the slain lamb. First thing I want us to recognize about this slain lamb is his worthiness. Let's notice the worthiness of the Lamb. And there's a buildup of images in this text, this wondrous, this glorious text. There's this buildup of images that demonstrate his worthiness. First of all, the worthiness of the Lamb is seen in where he stands. It's seen in where he stands. It says he's standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He's in proximity to the throne to the, to, and to him who sits on the throne. Secondly, not only where he stands, but how he's portrayed. Verse 6 again says, He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven horns, power and strength are represented by the horns. But, but there's seven of them, so they're perfect power, perfect strength complete strength and seven eyes knowledge and wisdom perfect knowledge perfect and complete wisdom and is speaking of the ministry of the holy spirit so the worthiness of the land lamb is seen in where he stands and it's seen in how he's portrayed and it's seen in what he takes verse 7 he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne he's the answer to the question in verse 2, where where the, the, the mighty angel asks, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? It's the lamb who is slain who is worthy. He takes... He takes the scroll from the Father, from the, Him who is sitting on the throne. He takes the scroll. It's the Father's scroll, but the lamb who is slain takes it. Now again... If you're like me, you try to imagine stuff, right? And, and so this is apocalyptic literature. So I'm sitting, you know, trying to think about, okay, how does a lamb who was slain take a scroll from him who's sitting on the throne? Like, is he using his, his paws? Like, how do you take a scroll and hold the scroll, right? You can't really do it. Are, is he taking it with his mouth? Again, we're, this is apocalyptic literature, so we're not trying to, we don't, worry so much about what it says and what it what it reads what it what does it mean let's worry about what it means not try to picture it all and make sure that it makes perfect sense because read it by what it means not by what it says but so he takes the scroll this scroll that is of, of 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 utmost importance the scroll that contains the plans as to how to restore the original intent of god's perfect and good creation he the lamb who was slain takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So the worthiness of the lamb is, lamb is seen in where he stands. It's seen in how he is portrayed with the seven horns and seven eyes. It's portrayed in, in, in what he takes. He takes the scroll. And then it's the worthiness of the lamb is seen in what he has done. Verse 8. 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased a people for God from every tribe and language and people group and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The lamb who was slain is worthy because he was slain. Not because of his rank, not because of his place, but, but because his blood was shed, ensuring victory for God's people. This, this is an image that's taking us back to Passover, which is in the Old Testament, where the Israelites are slaves uh, to the Egyptian people for 400 years. And, and God raises up Moses, right? And, he's, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to. And Moses then pronounces a plague. And there's plague after plague after plague. And Pharaoh will finally change his mind. And he says, okay, go. And then, psych, you can't go anymore. Um, and so a new plague would come. And it's this constant cycle of you can go, but no, you can't. And here comes a plague. And finally, the last plague. Is going to be the death, the angel of death is going to go all through the country of Egypt. And he's going to kill every firstborn son in every family. Whether it be of livestock, whether it be of people, every firstborn is going to die. Unless, unless you are among God's people who took a lamb and slit its throat and took the blood and put it on the doorposts of the house. And it's, and, and, when the, when the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over that house. And so that house was saved the misery and the sorrow of a, of a death of the firstborn. And we know that that pointed forward to, to one who would come, to the Lamb of God. So we have not yet named the Lamb, but who is this Lamb? Well, we know from John 1, 29, where John the, John the Baptist is preaching and Jesus walks to him and he says, Behold to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who by his death has taken away the sin of the world. And that was prophesied in Isaiah 53. It's on the screen here. He was pierced. This is speaking of the suffering servant who was to come. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus died for us and he ransomed people for himself. He died for our sins and he rose for our victory. And so how did the lamb conquer well, what's the slain lamb doing in the heavenlies? As John sees, he hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But then he opens his eyes and he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And what is the slain lamb doing? Standing. The slain lamb is standing because he did not stay in the grave. That, slain, that lamb who was slain is able to stand because he is alive. 
So the first thing to recognize about the slain lamb is his worthiness. Secondly, thing to recognize about the lamb is his weakness. Let's recognize the weakness of the lamb. Well, what kind of a weakness does this lamb have? What kind of a weakness? It's a chosen weakness. It's, he's a lamb who chose weakness. The all-powerful Jesus chose weakness for us. The lion chose to be a lamb. The lion chose to be a lamb. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, it'll be on the screen here, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, Jesus, when he was a lamb who was slain, he did so of his own choosing. And so let me ask a question. Is the display of his power, is, is, is his display of weakness the absence of power? Is Jesus' display of weakness the absence of power? No, it is actually the ultimate display of his power. Because perfect power is displayed in weakness. Perfect power is displayed in weakness. The Apostle Paul um, says in 2 Corinthians that he has a thorn in the flesh. There's something that, that God gave him. We don't know exactly what it is. We don't know if it's a literal thorn or if there's... If he, but he had some sort of weakness in his flesh. And, and, and he knows that God gave it to him in order to keep him hung, humble. And he, it says he prayed three times, which probably means three seasons of fasting and prayer, where he's asking God, would you remove this thorn in my flesh from me? Would you remove it? Would you allow me to walk in strength again? Would you allow me to walk in strength? And God says this. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, and so the, Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. You see, the lion wins by becoming a lamb. The lion wins by becoming a lamb. Lions roar. But Jesus was silent. Lions devour. Jesus was devoured. David killed his multitudes. Jesus cried out, forgive them, Father, as the multitudes cried out, crucify him. You tell me what's a greater display of power. It's divine power displayed in weakness. As he's raised on a cross, as he's pierced, he demonstrates his power by praying, Father, forgive them. You see, Jesus could have called down legions of angels, but he laid down instead. What power. Bruce Metzger writes this. He says, instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb who takes into himself the hurts of others. You see, our freedom 
is secured. Our ransom is paid not by force, but by his death. The lion is a lamb. You say, well, why this way? I think it's to display God's contempt for this world's power and wisdom. To demonstrate that the weakness and the foolishness of God is stronger than the strength and the wisdom of this world. Satan is killed and destroyed by a slain lamb. It's to demonstrate that God's way is not the way of the Romans. It's not the way of armies and intimidation, but God's way is of a slain lamb. And it's through the slain lamb that he wins. Paul Spillsbury writes this. I'll be on the screen here. He says, unlike earthly superpowers that get their way by brute force or manipulation, God achieves his purposes through the apparent weakness and defeat of a sacrificial victim. See the worthiness of the lamb seen in the weakness of the lamb. And we, like the lamb, you know, we like the lamb when he's worthy. We like the lamb that's weak, but we resist this third thing we need to understand about the lamb, and that's the way of the lamb. And we resist it because that's to be our way too. Who among us likes weakness? Who among us likes trials and tests? Who among us likes thorns in the flesh? Are we ready to receive that answer that Paul received? My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Cornerstone is living for the sake of Christ, enough for you if it means living in weakness. Do we have the kinds of eyes and ears to receive this? Are we, are we content in being weak? If being weak allows greater opportunity for the power of God to show itself. Are we content in being weak if being weak allows greater opportunity for the power of Christ to manifest itself? What if the many prayers, what if our many prayers for God's power to manifest itself in our time and place have this kind of answer? This is this is count the cost to Christianity. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure of knowing Christ. This treasure that we have of, of knowing God as our Father. We have this treasure in, in jars of clay. What are, what are jars of clay? It's a band from the 90s. Had one good album, Right? Jars of clay are, are, are like you drop it and, it and it shatters, right? What about, what about Paul's preaching ministry? Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's a strong preacher, right? He says we have this treasure in, in jars of clay. We, have this, we, we carry this treasure of knowing God, of knowing Christ in, in weakness, in the weakness of our flesh. Well, maybe his preaching is... Well, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message, my preaching 
We're not with, with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in men's wisdom, but on God's power. The way of the Lamb, the weakness is also the way of his people. What about Paul? What, you know, and what, I, what we need to see is that this isn't resignation. This isn't like, oh, I'll just, I guess life's going to suck. It's not resignation to a hard life. It's reliance. It's reliance. It's not resignation. Peter uh, writes of Jesus, and he says, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is important verses. He says, First uh, Peter chapter two, verse two. Uh, no, maybe it's Second Peter chapter two, verse two. I just wrote that down this morning. Um, it's no, that's not it either. I'm sorry, but it says it's, it talks about where where Jesus entrusted himself to his Father, even while he was being slandered and even while he was being beat, beaten. He entrusted himself to his Father. He's trusting someone outside of himself. Then the way of the lamb is to entrust. It's not resignation to to difficulty. It's reliance upon God through difficulty. It's not defeatism. It's entrustment. And that should change the way we look at things. The way of the lamb should change the way we look at things. It should change the way we look at sickness or disease. Can God's power be displayed in the healing of disease? Yes. But can God's power also be shown in its, the presence of disease? I think it can. We can show that my treasure is not my health. My ultimate treasure is not in a good and easy life now. This should change the way we look at old age. should change the way we look at phys- the physically and mentally disabled. Both in the womb and outside of the womb, I may add. It should change the way we look at poverty, of isolation, at giftedness, how we define beauty. We can and we should cry out for relief and for healing. But if my weakness will better display the strength and the beauty and the glory of Jesus, will I be content with that? You see, we worship a lamb who was slain. And we're called to follow in the way of the lamb. So, we've seen the worthiness of the lamb. We've seen the weakness of the lamb. We've seen the way of the lamb. Lastly, I want us to see the worship of the Lamb. I've read some of these verses again, but they're so good. I'm going to read them again. We're starting in verse 8 of Revelation 5. So, and when he had, that's the Lamb, had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth 
And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven attributes, perfect worship, complete worship. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is so good. This is so good. Revelation 4 ended with the worship of him who sits on the throne. Revelation 5 ends with that worship extended now to include the lamb who was slain. Right up until from verses 9 through verse 12, it's the lamb who's being worshipped. It's the son, it's Jesus who's being worshipped. And then verse 13 and 14, it's the father and the son together being worshipped. I want us to see as well the connection between our worship here on earth and the activity in heaven. This should blow us away, actually. We can so easily read over it. But verse 8 says that, that the elders, they had, they had bowls, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There's this undeniable unity between here and there. That our prayers here and now are the fragrance of heaven. I want us to see too now in the worship that, that our reign as the church, as, as the saints, as the, those who have been purchased by the Lamb, that we have a reign that has begun, begun now if we're a follower of Jesus. Verse 10 says, You have made them now to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth both now and future, future and present. We're a priest, a kingdom of priests. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now, Ephesians tells us. Oh, this is so good. This is so rich. I could spend thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands of moments just reveling in this with you. To him who sits on the throne. And when we have this vision... There's a vision of who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished in his death and his resurrection and that he's now seated at the right hand of the heavens and the heavenlies. That he has all authority and all power and all dominion. And to him belongs all glory and all honor. Doesn't that just free you up to live with a new courage? To live with a new joy in the midst of difficulty? To live with with a new... um, a resoluteness in following the Lamb. Because the Lamb is also a lion. That He is strong. Let me close with just one silly little illustration. I love, you know, I love baseball. I like to coach baseball. I coach my kids in the summer. There's a great um, baseball movie called A League of Their Own. Have you seen it? A League of Their Own. It's kind of old. Tom Hanks is a coach, right? And he's a coach of this women's team. And um, he's kind of like a gruff old guy, right? And, and he's managing, coaching this girls' team. And one of, the, one of the girls, you know, makes a play and throws to the wrong base, makes a mistake. And, 
she comes back to the dugout and he just lights her up, right? He gets in her grill and he's like letting her have it. And she starts to cry, right? And that just gets him even more fired up. He's, and, he, and he just blurts out, he says, there's no crying in baseball. Cornerstone, there's no crying in heaven. There's no crying in heaven. Weep no more, for the lion has chosen weakness. So will you follow his way? Will you worship him? And this Easter morning, will you raise your voice to him who loves you and gave himself for you? Let's pray.